We are not taught about money and finance and property and business at school. We could negotiate and talk about this for days, whether that's done purposely or why it's excluded. But the reality is it, it is excluded. The opposite side of the equation was predatory people who took advantage of that naivety. And if that person had a level of education, could hold a better frame in that conversation, one, they probably would have been better equipped to choose the right advisor in the first place. But secondly, at least hold them to a higher standard. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth Property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management, sales and buyers agency servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here's your host, Jared Mann. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm a big fan of your work and I listen to your podcast and read a lot of your um, content. So, it's great to have the Wealth Mentor on Perth Property Insider. Great to be here, mate. We've just come off the back of uh, some torrential rain up in far north Queensland, most rain in 15 years. So I'm currently living on an island and uh, I can't escape. And we're raising a, a, a fig bird chick that fell out of a tree. So I'm sure we'll get into the, my, my story or whatnot, but it's, it's, there's never a dull moment up here, mate. <laughs> well, I'm excited to have you on the show because you're the first episode of 2024 for our listeners. And I really wanted to help them set a solid foundation to start off the year with. And this is the kind of stuff that if you get right, it's going to serve you over a whole lifetime. So really looking forward to unpacking things today. Yeah, I hope I can share some good value for people to start the year right. Well, before we deep dive into some stuff, tell us a bit about your background and some of your earlier experiences around money. Yeah, so my journey really starts with my parents. My parents were business owners. Mum was a hairdresser. Dad was a tradie, incredibly hard workers, and very passionate about what they did. It took a lot of pride in their work, but we never had a lot of money. And there was always a roof over the head, always had uh, food on the table, but there was never any excess. And I realized that something was wrong uh, because I saw a lot of my, my, my friends at school who seemed like they, they had everything together. They had all of the toys and the experiences and the overseas holidays. And I was part of that kind of group of families at school where even if there was an excursion, my parents would have to go on a payment plan just so I could be included because they never wanted me to miss out. But it was always very hard for them to come up with those excess financial means. It's, it's interesting. I know a lot of people who speak about this stuff that it has definitely been uh, a kind of a detractor from them. I never saw myself as a victim as a kid, and I just took it for what it was, but I've definitely used it as rocket fuel to propel me to create what I have. And I started training to become a financial advisor when I left school, thinking I'd be helping people like my parents, and I very quickly realized that the financial advice industry, at least from my own experience, was only wanting to help wealthy people get wealthier, and it was only interested in selling commission-based products to people like my parents, which wasn't going to help them get to where they wanted to go. So I nearly quit. And on my last fleeting thought, I said, well, if you're not going to fix it, who will? And so I decided to start calling myself a wealth coach. And I built an educational-based syllabus and philosophy to help people like my parents master the language of money and get their foundations right, which is very appropriate for our conversation here today, mate. And in the last uh, 16 years, I've helped my clients build over $2 billion in combined wealth, and I've now built a business that's now eight figures, and we've got a team of, of over 40, and uh, I've been able to create financial freedom at 34. So I'm very fortunate to uh, the journey that I've uh, that I've gone on and what I've been able to create. Yeah, it's fabulous. And um, you mentioned there that you try to help people take the right approach. Where do people often go wrong? Because... It's you, People might be listening to this thinking, yeah, I got it right, but you don't know what you don't know a lot of the time. You're exactly right. 
here's the challenge, right? And it all lies with our upbringing. We are not taught about money and finance and property and business at school. And I'm sure we could negotiate and talk about this for days, whether that's done purposely or why it's excluded. But it, the reality is it, it is excluded, right? And which means that as human beings, we are reliant on the subjective experience of the people who raise us, our parents, our family, our friends, and our own first-hand experiences, which is often school of hard knocks. And there are some people who are taught great values and have great systems because their parents were wealthy. It's very much the kind of rich dad, poor dad analogy. And there were people like my parents who tried their best. They wanted me to to have an edge, but they were basically speaking from an experience they did not have. And it always falls on deaf ears and is never as valuable as those who've actually walked it. So the challenge I see, mate, particularly because we work primarily with business owners, but the common thread of it with a lot of these people who are frustrated around their money is they're ambitious, but they lack a system and their ambition exceeds their ability. And then they, then they just throw their hands up and they say, I'm not a money person. I don't get this. This is all too hard. And they often give up without actually going to find the, the, the rules of the game because there are rules that need to be followed if you want to be successful with money. And that's the first issue. Well, it makes a lot of sense because what you mentioned earlier, that sort of wealth gap, and it's not certainly not helped in Australia by the access that the average person doesn't have to financial planners and actually getting support. And it seems to have gotten worse over the last few years with the Royal Commission that changed a lot of things in the financial space. And I think the number of advisors has dropped drastically. To, and you know those that are left uh, have a lot more compliance that they need to follow and so that cost ends up sort of getting passed on to the consumer and so the people that really need it often can't afford it and the advisors that are left are, are a lot fewer and so they're having to choose who they work with and who they can add the most value to and and so there's this gap where a lot of people want help but who do they go to for it yeah and it's interesting that you, we talk about this because I've got a very firm philosophy and it, it seems a little bit fortuitous, but I think I just got lucky because of my experience, is that I acknowledged very early on that the shortfall of my parents was lack of education, right? They did not understand how to make money work for them, which meant that they were working for money. And I realized that even early on in my advice career, the vast majority of people who went through that frustration of their ambition exceeding their ability then immediately went to abdicating responsibility. Like, oh, I'm not a money person. I don't have the time. I don't care about this. A financial advisor, take my money and just look after it for me and promise you won't do anything silly. And the issue here, and my belief, is no one is ever going to love your money like you do. You have a duty to your money to make sure that you understand how to make it work. And this doesn't mean that you don't outsource, but you can't outsource unless you know, because that's abdicating responsibility. And not to point blame, but this created this dichotomy, right? Where there were people who were uneducated, trusting with blind faith, these individuals who were supposed to be fiduciaries to manage their money. On the opposite side of the equation was predatory people who took advantage of that naivety. And if that person had a level of education, could hold a better frame in that conversation, one, they probably would have been better equipped to choose the right advisor in the first place, but secondly, at least hold them to a higher standard. So I personally believe that moving forwards in this situation we're in with dropping advisor numbers, increasing numbers of people who need advice, the best thing you can do is get educated 
And there's never been a better time to get access to all of this great information so you can make better decisions for yourself. So where does someone start? And I know you've got a number of different frameworks and that's why I like that you make that whole complex world of money a lot simpler for people and easier because, you know, it's, as you've mentioned before, people can easily just get overwhelmed, say it's too hard for me and then outsource the whole thing. So, Correct. So I try my best to make this simple. And we don't want to trivialize it either because, you know, there is a lot to learn, but if you just take it one bite size at a time, it all starts to add up and then you start getting momentum and before you know it, you look back a few years later and it's like, wow, you've come a long way. Exactly. The analogy I like to use here, mate, is that I can imagine you're wanting to learn German. And you go to the first lesson and then you get the shits because you didn't have it nailed in the first lesson. It would just be an unrealistic expectation that you would be fluent in one lesson. And the same thing is with money, right? You're not going to be fluent in the first interaction at the first lesson. It's about iterating and continuing to show up. So where you need to show up first is you need to learn how to goal set properly. And this has become a little bit of a cliche. There's so many people that talk about these different goal setting systems, but I talk about this from a different perspective. Is it? I talk about it from the perspective of creating what I call the 20-year roadmap. Now, my underlying philosophy around goal setting is that for the vast majority of people, their shortfall in terms of their goals is not an absence of resource, it's an absence of planning. And what I refer to this as is that most people are one-dimensional planners. They're like a horse with their blinders on. They focus on a goal at a time. It's like, okay, I want to go on a holiday, I want to buy a new car, I want to get into my house, I want to pay it off. And inevitably what happens is they focus on this one goal, but another goal comes out of the periphery and competes for the same resources. And they now need to make a scarcity-based choice. Now, my philosophy of this, and obviously it helps because I work with business owners who do have more control over their income, is that if only they could have had a three-dimensional plan documenting all of their goals, dreams, and aspirations, and they could have set an income target that ensured they could do everything they wanted, then it would have been a lot easier for them to do the right activity to have the right outcomes. So how we facilitate this is we call it the 20-year roadmap. So I want you to draw on a page, line down the middle, and on one side, write lifestyle, on the other side, write financial. And then I then want you to create one year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, and 20 years. Now, for most people, this sounds scary because like, I don't even know what I want for dinner tonight. And what was interesting is the first time I, I did this, Jared, is I, I sat down and I stared at a page and I couldn't get past one year. And I sat there for hours. But what you need to do is you need to document your lifestyle goals, which are the qualitative goals, the holidays, the experiences, the hobbies, the interests, the school you want to send the kids to, anything that's qualitative, adds quality to your life. I want you to get clear on those goals. And financial goals are the quantitative goals. It is the things that set you up for the future, buying your home, paying it off, creating the property portfolio, creating enough passive income, providing the kids the opportunity to get into their first time. And what we want to do is we want to get at least one goal in every single box, one, five, 10, 15, 20 years. Now, the interesting thing is the first time you do this, you probably won't fill it in, but it's about coming back to it. I came back to it a week later and I added more. And then I come back to it a month later and then I added more, a quarter later, and things started to shift and change. There's things I didn't want anymore. Things got added, things got removed, things got shifted. And what this does, this becomes a dynamic, living, breathing plan because it is not the money that we want. Money's just the vehicle. We need to define the destination and then reverse engineer that back to choose the appropriate vehicles to get us there. 
And this fundamentally changed how I start work towards my goals. Since implementing this, I've achieved 90% of all the goals that I've set. And we do exactly the same thing with our clients each and every single quarter. And it changes the game for them too. That does. Well, I love that more holistic approach to goal setting because a lot of the people that just focus on the money get there and find out that it's very shallow. And then it's like, well, now what? And you've possibly spent the last decade shooting for that number and you wake up and you don't have a wife perhaps you don't have a, a life you don't have any friends you don't have any hobbies or very few your health's ruined and you've lost out on the time um and i'm trying to be very conscious myself of being a better dad and and not and, and being a great parent and you know I'm, I'm as well as having balance in all these other areas i don't want to you know, look back and wish that I'd valued everything a bit more, you know, evenly. So, do you find that, how do your typical, with your new clients that you're coming across, is is that pretty common that they're either like focused on just one dimension or two dimensions at the, you know, expense of balance? Or? It's really interesting, mate, that there's a few buckets that people fall, fall into. One is they haven't planned at all. And that typically comes down to a fear of being held accountable and then being responsible for their shortfalls. So they they keep things out in the in the world. They allow the universe to work stuff out. They fly by the set of their pants. I used to be like that as well. I was like, it was that sort of fear of, you know, you just think, oh, the universe will give me what I need and a fear of putting stuff down. And, and I, I thought I was scared once I put it down, like it was fixed. Like, so... <laughs> And it's confronting because I was there too. And what I, the shift for me was, well, if anybody's going to be f- to blame, I want it to be me because at least I know I tried everything that I possibly could to get to that outcome as opposed to missing all of the shots that I didn't take, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is blind pursuit of something that is superficial, that we go through a process called the five whys, where we go through the depth of all of these things. And people might say, I want a Ferrari. Why? And then we keep chunking down and we ask why five times. And, and if we can't get five layers deep and find something of significance, it doesn't matter. And either when you get there, it's going to feel empty, like you said, or you won't get there at all because it's actually not intrinsically motivating to you. And really, I guess the third part to that is that people are chasing, have been chasing something for so long because that's what they've been told that they need to chase. And then they have some, what I call the come to Jesus moment where they realize that that's actually not the right thing and it's detrimental. They haven't actually considered the true cost of what it is to pursue that thing. Like for many of our clients, it's scaling these wildly profitable businesses, but they're working 80 hour weeks, right? And their, their, their kids don't even know them and all the other situations like that. So what's really important is this dynamic recalibration. And for myself personally, for years, I actually, my, my dream car, which actually still is the screensaver of my computer as a bit of a reminder, was a 1996 Dodge Viper GTS Coupe. Uh, anybody who knows cars will, will be able to visualize it straight away. It was about a $150,000 car. And as I went through my life, I had this epiphany just prior to COVID that I wanted to spend a year traveling around Australia in a full drive to show my clients who normally said, I want to do the same, but I have to wait until I'm 65. And I know stuff that I'm going to show you how to do that now. And I spent that same amount of money on a Toyota troop carrier. And we spent a year traveling around Australia. So there was a placeholder on my plan for it. I just repurposed the means. And then same thing in terms of our animal sanctuary we've created up in far north Queensland where we've rescued over 100 animals. I always had a dream to be on the land and do these things. I just wasn't sure of the location. 
And as a result of having this recalibrated plan, I've been able to bring all of these things to fruition in many cases faster than if I would have had a static plan. And this is the power of doing something like this. Nice. And you mentioned various assets. Where do you sort of see property and the different assets fitting in? Because they've got to obviously help us bring about this lifestyle. And how does that sort of start coming together? Yeah, I I love property. We live and breathe property. And my whole philosophy around wealth is very boring. And there are only three tried and true ways to build wealth in this world. Other things will come and go. There's fads that are going around, but I think we need to focus on things that have true intrinsic value, that we can understand the fundamentals, and we know those fundamentals drive uh, asset appreciation and uh, yield over time. So the three ways are business. You need to build a valuable business if you are a business owner that can reach a liquidity event. And not all businesses can be sold. I've got clients who are consultants or solopreneurs, and they, they need to acknowledge that their business is a cash flow vehicle, which is fine. But you look at any rich list in the world, the vast majority of people are there because of their business interests. So the idea as a small business owner is to manufacture equity into your business. And if you can, acquire other businesses. I've been fortunate enough to do over eight figures in acquisitions. Buying businesses is a big part of my wealth building strategy because I know how to do it and I've got a philosophy around it. The second bucket is property. Now, we know that property and shares have returned about the same over the long term, about 9%. Okay. The benefit of property, and I know I'm preaching at the choir here, is leverage. We can take a small amount of money, we can leverage it up in some cases 10 times, and we can magnify our cash on cash return. So if anybody's listening to this and hasn't been tuning into the show and is not that that versed on property, let's say you buy a a property for a million bucks, you've spent 100 grand as a deposit, you've borrowed 900. If that million dollar property goes up by 5% or 50 grand, that's a 50% cash on cash return. So once again, go to the rich list. The second thing that these people hold aside from their their business is property because of that. But property is illiquid. We can't sell the kitchen sink if we need to raise capital. And for most people in terms of passive income, it's not fantastic because once we consider the costs of holding, it's the most highly taxed thing in this world. It's not necessarily great for passive income. So then we get to shares. And shares is a portion of somebody else's business. With the added benefit that it is transparent, we can look at the financials, and it is liquid because we can buy pieces of companies and we can do so incrementally over time. Now, I personally don't stock pick. I invest in index funds. And for those who don't know, an index fund is basically the ability to get all of the companies that exist in a market. So let's say the ASX 300. And if I invested $1,000 in the ASX 300, I would own all of those 300 top companies with the biggest slice of the top one, which I think is CBA at the moment, and the smallest slither of the 300 company. And I would get the average of however those 300 companies perform over time. And my personal strategy is I invest in a diversified index fund that not only gives me access to the Australian market, but also international, listed property, emerging markets, bonds, fixed interest all in one fund. It is vanilla, it's boring, and it's done about 8% per year. And I could do that on autopilot without having to worry about it. So business, property, shares, I personally try and accumulate as much of all three that I can, and that will shift and change as I go through various life stages depending on what I need as a person. Makes a lot of sense. So there's so much content everywhere on all of these uh, three things. And I probably went through the similar stages as you were when I was growing up, you know, between 16 and 20, which is some 20, 24 years ago. 
you know, there was very little content around. There was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. There was a couple of books. You know, they were very hard to get. The, the wealth creation and business sections of your local bookstore were very thin. And now we've got whole, you know, we don't even put them in a bookstore now. They're all in audio and thousands of podcasts and just so much content. It can probably be a bit overwhelming for people. But why do you think then there isn't more wealthy people around because the stats that I've seen show that the wealth gap's actually getting larger, not smaller. So what do you think is contributing to this? And if more content is not the answer, you know, what do people need? It's interesting is that it's become this point of analysis paralysis. And I think we've got access to so much information. So people are overwhelmed by choice. And then when they do consume the information, they're overwhelmed by conflicting opinions. And a lot of these resources, what they don't address is the mindset of the operating system that drives these decisions. So if we simplify this, right, there is the quality of your ideas, which is the quality of your mindset and the quality of the information, right? But even just listening to this podcast, there's probably ideas that you've got as a result of, of listening or watching this that you wouldn't have had if you wouldn't have allocated time. However, a good idea in theory remains exactly that, just a good idea until you put it into practice. So the second factor is the quality of your actions. And the issue that I see made is that because most people are ambitious, they try and take too much action and they reach what we call the friction point of action. And the analogy I like to use, and I talk about this a lot with my clients, is what I call money muscle memory. Let's imagine for a moment that we're at the gym, okay, because we're training, because we've decided that we want to become our, our strongest and fittest self. And you've never been to the gym before. And you go to the squat rack and you put 300 kilos of weights on the bar and you try and lift it. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> Doesn't sound like a good first visit. <laughs> no, it's not a good first visit at all. Yet investors go an entire lifetime without investing, without building this muscle memory, and they think they can just go buy $2 million of property on the first day. It doesn't work like that, right? If you get that, that bar off the, off the rack, you're going to hurt yourself if you get it off at all. Instead, we need to start with the bar, right? We need to lower the stakes. What is the, the minimum viable action that you could take that's one step above doing nothing? Let's get the form right. Let's build some confidence. Let's make sure we don't hurt ourselves. And let's incrementally add weight over time. And what this does is it creates confidence. And with that confidence, we start creating habits and then we start creating repeated actions. There is never one decision that you will make that will skyrocket you to financial freedom. In fact, relying on a few number of decisions increases and elevates the risk because the risk of each decision being right is elevated. Instead, we try and have as many decisions and actions taken as possible. So we dilute each decision and action in the grand scheme of things. And a lot of the work we do with our clients is around mindset, but it's also about creating systems that creates a minimum viable decision or take action off the table through automation. Because the, the idea is if we can make sure that the decision, the default decision is yes or doing something as opposed to not, then we're far better off than relying on a manual intervention. Yeah, nice. So I love my automated uh, <laughs> ways of just putting money aside. You forget about it. I do it inside the business and outside the business. I get excited at the end of the year because I go and check the various business accounts that we've been allocating to and if we haven't used the money i just clear it all out to myself and and put it across to the personal investing accounts outside and and it's just automation 
is fabulous because if it came down to me having to make a decision every single time, it might be how I'm feeling on the day or, you know, any number of things that could stop that money going to investing or to larger savings for a larger goal. And, um, you know, thankfully with automation, it just happens without me seeing it. That's so important, mate. It's liberating, right? Because one of the things that most people don't know about is we are intrinsically wired to resource guard and play it safe. So there is a behavioral finance principle called loss aversion bias. And this goes back thousands and thousands of years. If we go back to the early days of, of, the, of the human civilization, we didn't have certainty around where we would be living or where we would be eating, right? So we needed to be really careful with the resources we had. And this has become intrinsically wired into us. And they've proven it, that we feel the emotion of loss twice as significantly as the emotion of gain. And what this means is that once you get to a certain level of comfort, pursuing discomfort needs a really, really good reason. And what we do with our clients is we've built a system that makes sure they put at least twice as much effort, in many cases, three times or more, getting out of their comfort zone and rationalizing it. Otherwise, they're just going to resource guard and do nothing. And they always find an excuse. There's always procrastination. There's always something that gets in the way. And it's because we're protecting ourselves from ourselves. So these systems are not optional. They're a necessity to allow yourselves to work towards financial freedom. If you don't have them, you're at a significant biological disadvantage. Well, you just started mentioning there some of our pre-programming and and expand a bit more on this because I've heard you speak about money memories before as well. And, and I think these programming can be, they can really sabotage us, not just at the beginning, but as we reach different levels and I'd love for you to sort of explain that how the comfort zone and everything sort of fits together in that because I've found that I get to a certain level and hit almost a ceiling and then I have to find my way through that next level and I have to keep doing this and uh, and I'm curious as well if if that's the the journey for the rest of time like or do you just suddenly blow the have no ceiling at all and and keep going but in my experience there's always been after keep leveling up leveling up leveling up so yeah there is always a ceiling right and it's just your ceiling is different than someone else's ceiling and i think there's a lot of societal pressures that can sometimes convolute that and complicate it but let's kind of unpack it a little bit so i think the first thing that we need to acknowledge firstly is that this is a marathon not a sprint right and i think for many of us we've been raised to measure everything by this this lens of, of of perfection, right? Comparing with others as well, you know. There's so much comparison and so much measurement of perfection in order to create to make us kind of contributing members to society, right? Because I think trying to be perfect as a from a philosophical standpoint is noble, but it's unrealistic in this world, particularly when we're talking about wealth. Because the interesting thing, mate, is that you could do everything right in wealth, but there is always an element of of luck. And a black swan event that could hit you for a six, even though you did nothing wrong. So this means that we need to focus on progress over perfection. So I created a methodology called the, the, the wealth pyramid. And there's basically five levels. Level number one is financial battle. And this is where we are at a loss financially. We're racking up debts, we're burning through cash at a rate of knots, we're drowning. The next level is financial comfort. This is about getting to break even, of treading water. And the idea is we need to elevate ourselves to a position where we're not drowning anymore. We can kind of have a little bit of comfort, but we're not going forwards. Level three is financial growth. 
And this means that we've got surplus. We've got profit in the business. We've got personal surplus. We're saving. We're paying down debt. We're building wealth, potentially all of those things. Now, stage four is financial freedom. And this is where things get ambiguous for most people because financial freedom means something different to everyone. But I simplify it into two things. One, you own your home and it is paid off in full. Because once you own your home and it's fully paid, it takes this massive weight off your shoulders. You have certainty around where you can live and it takes a tremendous pressure off your budget. And secondly, you need enough passive income where you've got the freedom to choose what you do with your time. Because for most people, they're never going to retire, right? Particularly if you love what you do. You only retire if you're not physically able or if you loathe what you do. We just want to be able to choose what we do because we love it. And then stage five is abundance. This is where you've got more than what you need. And this is now about legacy, about impact, about being a hero to others and using that financial resource and your skill set in order to leave that, that memory, to leave that impact. Now, the important thing to understand here, mate, is that we're never going to jump from, say, battle to abundance. We need to earn our stripes, so to speak, as we progress. And what this now does is if we say we're at comfort, we need to get to growth. There is only a finite number of options or things that we could do to get from that position to the next. And that allows us to then stay around our, in our own lane and then run that race. I'll get off my soapbox in a second, but the overlay to this is our subconscious filters, right? We've got to acknowledge the fact that in the world at any point in time, there are millions of pieces of individual stimuli throughout our eyes, throughout ears, through all of our senses. And our brain is so good at chunking that down into 20 or 30 pieces of information. And it does so because of your subconscious lenses and filters, which are conditioned over decades. And they aren't just there. They aren't presupposed, but they're often invisible unless you acknowledge how to unpack them. And your lenses will dictate the quality of the opportunities that present themselves. This has been proven that they did this study and they, they found these individuals who had done it really, really tough, right? Financial hardship, lost jobs, gone through all of these problems. And they made them walk through this street and on the floor was a, a note. Let's call it a $100 note. And because these people were so oppressed in their mindset and their thinking, they didn't even see the note. Compared to people who were of abundance, had great experiences, great life, full of joy, and they saw it the majority of times. And there's lots of these different studies that have been done in terms of mindset. So once again, the quality of your ideas will, quali- will dictate the quality of your actions, and the, the quality of your actions will dictate the quality of your outcomes. Yeah, I love that. So... You have so many different sort of tools that can help people on their financial journeys. Is there any others that you would direct people to or start, Matt? I know you've got different resources available. What's some other starting points for people? Yeah, so the my first book is called Enjoy the Journey, Creating Wealth and Living the Life You Desire. So if you're, com- if you're focusing on improving your personal finances, building that foundation, implementing these things, even going through the goal-setting exercise, that's the best place to start. And the idea there is that we need to make sure we've got this, this great foundation at home and we create bandwidth because it's that bandwidth that's going to allow you to either elevate your financial position if you're an employee or continue to elevate your business and elevate your personal position if you're a business owner, because there's even more complexity. My second book is called The Secrets to Scaling a Seven-Figure Lifestyle Business. So if you are a business owner or you're interested in getting into business, I basically documented the exact playbook that I've used to now scale an eight-figure business. 
and, and help many of my clients scale seven, eight, and even nine-figure businesses in the process. And the idea is how do we create a, an immensely profitable business without selling our soul on the process? And that's, that's, that's really valuable. And in fact, I've actually just published my third book, which is called The Family Vault, How to Create Generational Wealth and Keep It. So once you are wealthy, then the biggest issue for most of us is how do we then pass that to the next generation to empower them and turn them into stewards and not spoil brats? And I've written that book because there's this age-old adage of from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. So the first generation makes it, the second generation spends it, and the third generation starts again. So I've documented a philosophy of how to pass on an operating system that ensures that your next generations can uh, use that money for good uh, as opposed to uh, mischief. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I've found as well on the journey is that there's always sort of, you know, two sides to every coin and there's problems, you know, challenges, I guess, people think, oh, having lots of money is easy. Well, there's then the problem of what do you do with the money and how does that change your relationships with others and with yourself and, you know, coming to terms with that. And I love this. I, I'm continuously asking myself, you know, how do, how do we parent, I guess, coming from a place where you then have money because I don't want my children to end up spoiled and because when I grew up not having it, I when I went to uni and met others that sort of really came from that silver spoon and mouth where they just got took everything for granted and got given everything and, and so how do you find that balance and instill the right, you know, beliefs such that they're still willing to work hard for it and still value, you know, money and that you want them to go out and become something of themselves and not just expect, you know, continual handouts for the rest of their lives. So, And it's a, it's a really fine balance and it is really hard, right? Because I acknowledge that coming from hardship and for many first generation wealthy individuals, we, we, we went hungry, right? Like we have this fire in our belly that we cannot replicate because the next generation will never be hungry. We'll never allow it. And trying to get them to use those same values and that same rocket fuel is it, it's silly because it, it's just a completely different frame of perspective. Instead, we need to help them realize that they are they are stewards, right? They are caretakers of that money for future generations. And it's that wealth that gives them the freedom to choose how they purposefully go and solve the real problems in the world. Because it's my view that if we can remove the need for people to work because of the blind pursuit of money, and the next generations can truly go and pursue their passions and solve the real problems in the world, we'll have a better world. But only if that's done with the right values. And the, the saying goes, give them so much that they can do anything, but not so much as they do choose to do nothing. And this is the whole philosophy of how I've tr tr tried to write the book, that we want them to earn their stripes. There's no guarantees. Like, frankly, if they're little shits, all of the money goes to charity, right? And they have a choice. So we can synthetically create these kind of hurdles and obstacles and really proving themselves, right? Proving that they are responsible individuals and that they have a vested interest in working and proving that they should have access to this wealth and that proving that they can actually use it for good. And I've used a lot of case studies, for example, the Rockefellers. The Rockefeller family, I think now are on to their 13th or 15th generation of like significant generational wealth. Compared to the Vanderbilts, who at the same time, early uh, early 1900s, was a, an equivalent wealthy family. However, the Vanderbilts, by the early 70s, their Fifth Avenue mansion was bulldozed because it was just so desolate and destroyed, all of the family wealth was lost. But the Rockefellers still have that wealth today. 
And this comes down to the fact that the Rockefellers have created a constitution and a process of family indoctrination. Just because you've got the Rockefeller name does not mean that you have a right and obligation to be part of the family wealth. And much like a business, you are interviewed, you are put through an ascension process, you must prove that you have the skills, and there are implications associated with doing the wrong thing. And it's this synthetic environment that's created that has allowed them to become a tremendous power and uh, in, in many cases do tremendous good. Now, whether we become the Rockefellers or not- well, There's a lot we can learn about. Of the philosophy and learn from it. And once again, help our kids realize that much like the, uh, the, the saying of a, a watch brand, Patek Philippe, is that um, you do not own a Patek Philippe, you merely take care of it for the next generation. And it is in this philosophy that we can overcome a lot of the challenges that many people have with generational wealth. Awesome. No, always three books that I can get into over the break. I'm going to be, uh, where are they on, on um, Amazon or like, and is it paper, digital format as well as paperback or? Yes, you can grab them on, on Amazon and you can grab them uh, both digital and paperback. And I've also put together a collection of resources. So if you are a business owner and uh, you want to get access to my books for free and also put, uh, put together a 40-point financial performance scorecard to help you work out how you're tracking and what you could do better, you can go to wealthhealthcheck.com.au. Uh, that's wealthhealthcheck.com.au and you'll be able to get access to those books and the scorecard uh, for free as my gift to you. Fabulous. So before we go, I didn't want to find out from you what do you actually do as a wealth coach because throw the the name around people might be like oh he clearly knows what he's talking about he's got some really good frameworks and and tools to help make things simple and actually help people break through you know all these things we've been talking about it so I'll pose to you, what is a wealth coach or is it just- <laughs> So there's a lot of terms that are thrown around in terms of the wealth space, but at our core, we are licensed financial advisors, right? So we can provide strategic financial advice to our clients to help them improve their, their financial position. But we do so from a position of coaching. And my philosophy of being a great coach is that if you have the skills and you have the dedication and you've got the ambition, then I can elevate that. And we work with our clients in a 50-50 partnership, whereby we want them to understand what we're doing and the philosophies behind why we're doing it. But we ultimately want to give them the choice. It's not my job to make decisions for my clients. It's my job to help them understand the options that are available and elevate the quality of the decisions that they do choose to make. And this is where we are different from many other advice businesses who typically abdicate that responsibility and make the decisions for their clients. So our clients are typically ambitious. They want to understand this. They may be frustrated because they have used other finance professionals in the past who maybe have taken those decisions away and they want to be more actively involved. And we work with them across defining their financial roadmap and getting really clear on what they're trying to achieve and creating that, that financial game plan of creating their investment operating system and making sure that they can maximize their cash flow and allocate those resources and then managing that wealth so it continues to nurture and grow as life changes and as their goals change. And then we also help them in the business because I personally believe, as I mentioned, in terms of the investment vehicles, that business is one of the best wealth vehicles that you can create. So we help people maximize more wealth using their business. And then we do that by maximizing their profit of helping them buy back their time and then preparing their business for a future liquidity event so they can create more freedom and flexibility. So that's in a nutshell of what we do. Uh, we do a lot of other things. We've got accounts. We've we've uh, we've got we do accounting, bookkeeping, uh, mortgage broking, so on and so forth. So there's a there's a there's a lot that we can do. 
So you're welcome to reach out and have a chat if any of that uh, any any of that aligns with what you're looking for. We'll put your details in the show notes as well as that website where you can get those extra bonuses from. And really appreciate the time you've spent today. And hopefully this will get people off to a good start to the year. Uh, yeah, I hope so too, mate. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thanks, Jackson. Just a reminder, the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature. As we don't know your specific situation, you should always seek professional advice before taking any action. For free market reports on your suburb of interest and other helpful resources to grow your wealth, make sure you join my property investor update at investorshedge.com.au slash join. And finally, make sure you're a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group. To be part of the conversation with other like-minded investors, get help to your questions and get a feel for what's going on out there in the market. I'll see you in the group. Thank you.